Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Book festival season in Edinburgh. I can't believe it. We're here already. In some ways, it's our busiest month of the year. Yeah, because at Open Book, you all listening will know this, but at Open Book, we have so many things that we do at the book festivals, which is really exciting for us. Claire and I this year are running three workshops which we just like the shared reading groups that you come to with us. Although we do tend to tackle a bit more material in those sessions and they last a little bit longer than normal, but that's just to fit the sort of book festival style. So this year we're looking at the poetry of Victoria Dwike Bully and Nina Mingya Pals. Claudia Rankin is the second one and the third one. Bernadine Everisto. But you'll know the format out there very well. We dive deep into the text and then read them aloud and chat about them. And sometimes it's a way of getting people, new people to join our group. Sometimes we find volunteers that way. But in general, it's just to expose the world to open book, which is great. And this year as well, you'll see in the programme that we have six of our open book shared reading sessions happening in the cafes and our lead readers will be running those for us. Each one will be looking at one of the first books debut writers coming to the book festival and those are all free but you do have to sign up for a ticket so that's another way you can take part in shared reading with open book during the book festival but most excitingly of all is that marjorie you'll be reading (laughs) your own work from in two different events as well as us both chairing various others but i'm really excited to have got a ticket to come along and see and hear you read yeah it's exciting it's my debut poetry collection which feels like it's been years in the making so that's really exciting and i'm also reading um some new work created along with Hannah Lavery for the Edwin Morgan Trust Second Life Awards. But also, as ever, we're bringing some of our groups to the Edinburgh Book Festival this year. So we're excited to have a day out where some of our participants and some of our open book readers can come along and see an author that they've been reading in their groups. If you're not an Edinburgh person, hopefully you'll have joined one of our groups, either online or in a more local book festival for you. But this is where it all started for us and partly where open book came from. We wanted to be able to bring different kinds of people to the book festival. So it's really important to us that we still do that. So August is all about the book festival, as you probably can tell. But we should probably talk about this month's story. And our theme of nostalgia, which kind of seems appropriate given that we spend a fair bit of time during the month of August going, remember when, remember that event, when, remember we did this. So it feels about right for August. Yeah, and we kind of picked this theme because it's our 10th year. So it feels like it's been a year of kind of looking back and thinking about, you know, how we got here. And then, you know, excitingly thinking about where we want to go. But nostalgia is all about that looking back for me, although we can talk about it during the story. So today we have a story called Reverie by Kimberly White and a poem by one of our lead readers, the much-loved Jen Hadfield called Nigh No Place. Will I get us started on the story? Yes, please. Reverie. Tales of the stag do to Amsterdam were being told in far too much detail if her sister's face was anything to go by. As the best man delivered his speech exuberantly to her left, Isla tuned in and out, floating on waves of thought. In her peripheral vision, the guests were chuckling, amused by the raucous stories, and laughing at the bride good-naturedly, who sat with her head in her hands. The bright and airy room was awash with the glow of good spirits and young love, but Isla was alone and far out to sea in her mind. Even though her sister was an ethereal goddess today, Isla couldn't focus on anyone but them, 
One of them sat on the table on the far right, and the other on the table on the far left, a statement of their divide. Their bodies were purposely angled in opposite directions. It made her want to scream like a banshee and shake them until their heads fell off. Her heart physically ached that they had chosen not to take their rightful seats at the top table on her sister's special day. But her sister had made it clear, either it was both of them or neither. They had decided for her, refusing to share a table, a toast, their daughter's wedding day. How did all those years together end up like this? How did they let it come to this? Isla couldn't count the time she'd spent chasing these thoughts from her sleep. And they look like bouncy castles, the best man finished up his jokes to jeers and applause, clapping reverberating in her ears. His words triggered Isla to jolt suddenly into a childhood memory. It was almost five-year-old Isla's bedtime, but she was jittery with excitement at the thought of her birthday tomorrow. Her mum and dad had a surprise for her. Now, close your eyes. If it was possible, her mum and dad seemed more elated than she was. They had made her stay up in her bedroom for the last hour while all sorts of noises and stifled giggling erupted below her. She was growing impatient, and she needed the toilet. Finally, they burst into her bedroom with a flourish, eyes wide and cheeks flushed. She could see her big sister behind them, giddy with glee. What is it? What is it? Isla was shrieking now, and her dad swooped down behind her to cover her eyes with his warm, calloused hands. The merry troop led her blindfolded to her mum and dad's bedroom window, which overlooked the garden. Ta-da! Dad uncovered her eyes. Wow! Isla couldn't believe what she was seeing. It was like all her dreams had come true. Her heart beat double time inside her little chest. Well... Mum was expectant, searching her face for a reaction. A bouncy castle? All for me? Mum and Dad dissolved into laughter. Yes, pet, well, not all for you. For the party tomorrow. And it's just a rental, it has to go back the following day, mind. Isla zipped around and raced down the stairs, her sister hot on her heels. Launching herself onto the bouncy castle, She was surprised how firm it was, how quickly it threw her back up into the air. She delighted in the rubbery smell as she faceplanted on the surface. It was candy floss pink with turrets reaching far into the sky. It was perfect. She bounced with her sister for what felt like hours late into the warm July evening. Mum and Dad gently prized her from the bouncy castle well past her bedtime, knees raw and spirits high. They had said she had to keep her energy for her birthday party tomorrow. All her friends were coming over. Should we stop there? Yeah, let's stop there. Did you have bouncy castles? Is that such a thing in in the States? We did, but they were called moonwalks. You never got them in your house. You know, they were the kind of thing you might get at a fair, and they were huge. You know, the really large ones. Did you ever have one? I think that's a recent thing, though. You know, when I was growing up, it was again, I, I remember my experience of bouncy castles was that every summer, one came with the carnival to the beach at Carnoustie. It was 50p, and you left your shoes, and you had to run up. You know, the whistle blew when your time was up, and you maybe got, you know, five minutes or something for your 50p, and that was it. And then the whole bouncy castle 
castle was cleared and the next lot would go on it. But that that smell of bouncy castles, you know, that's so, because I guess when I would be on it would be on a sunny day and that sort of smell of heat, heated rubber is really distinctive and evocative. It's funny, as you say it, I can smell it. <laughs> and and because ours was at the beach in Carnoustie, there was always a big element of as you bounced, a lot of sand would fly up in the air. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I really recognise that description of knees being raw. You could get a really nasty burn if you skidded too much or bounced too high and then landed at an awkward angle. I remember some serious injuries and now I'm sounding like a really boring adult you know, because you just had no control over which way you bounced. And so you could absolutely end up bouncing into stuff. And I remember tactically thinking when I was at the carnival trying to not be on them with the bigger boys because that was exactly what they were trying to do was bounce into each other. But it's interesting how we haven't even talked about the start of the story and we've gone straight to the bouncy castle. I think it sets up this mum and dad, you know, who are doing something together. And of course, you know, children don't necessarily observe what's actually happening between adults. And often, you know, the place where adults can come together is doing something nice for a child or reprimanding a child or whatever it is. But, you know, parenting does bring people together, but in ways that children quite often might not notice otherwise. The beginning of the story makes me really sad. You know, that idea that you wouldn't put things down for a special day for your own child is, is upsetting to me. The idea that you, you would still put your own feelings or emotions first, even though it's a really special day for Isla's sister. Yeah, and also Isla, you know, so it's a remarkable, it says more about the adults, I think, than anything else, you know, that it's a it's a particular kind of person that can't see past or see the needs of others around them. It's still about, you know, whatever it was. And I get the feeling from the story that it, it's a long time ago, you know, that it, you know, it feels like she's, she's shocked that they wouldn't sit together. And so, you know, they obviously just haven't just broken up or had a massive fight, you know, because then it would be less surprising, really. And it seems to me as well that in this case, there's equal fault on both sides. Both have refused to sit at the table and both have turned purposely away. Yeah, well, that's true, because otherwise you might be inclined to think one parent has said no and then Isla said, well, okay, that's true for both of you. I mean, I'm not sure, sorry, her sister. I'm not sure I would do that. I think I would just say, be grown-ups. Whoever wants to be a grown-up can sit at the table. <laughs> I think these situations are so complicated, aren't they? And fraught. But it's funny because I, I often think for weddings, it's about, you know, making sure the bride and groom have their best day. And so part of it is just getting out of the way, <laughs> you know, and making the least amount of complications possible so that they can get on with enjoying their day rather than thinking, mm, you know, how am I going to manage this? But, you know, like everything else, what you wear, where you sit, what you eat, all these things are sort of rife with possible offense and complication, even in the best of weddings. <laughs> so I can only imagine if you have this layer of complication on top of it, you'd be trying to, yeah, I would be trying to make it easy for my children. But luckily, it doesn't sound like the bride is, you know, it sounds like the bride's got her head around it. Yeah, and, and there's very much take it or leave it this is my offer and maybe that's that was her way of controlling the situation or managing it saying well this is yeah as you say take it or leave it and it would be really hard to be the parent who wanted to sit at the table though but it, it doesn't sound like either was prepared to forego their toddler-like behavior and turn their back on each other which i can see that's probably really good self-awareness or awareness by the bride who didn't want the rest of the guests to be looking at this top table which is supposed to be a a new star and an exciting day and full of happiness with the two of the players sitting with their back to each other and their arms crossed. Yeah, I guess so. And I suppose if they're doing that down below, they would have continued to do it at the top. Shall I read on? Yeah, go for it. During the night, 
Isla awoke with a start. A sensitive wee soul, she could hear something downstairs. She was scared that someone was stealing her bouncy castle. Sticking on her welly boots and wielding her sword for protection, she picked her way downstairs to confront the intruder. She reached the double doors leading out into the garden and peeked out from behind. She had identified the commotion and it was quite unexpected. Mum and Dad were bouncing on the bouncy castle, giggling unstoppably and whooping as they tossed each other from side to side. Mum even had a glass of wine in her hand and was trying to bounce, unsuccessfully, with her hand over the glass so as not to spill. Mum's lack of coordination seemed to delight Dad greatly. Her hair had come undone from its top knot and billowed round her shoulders, golden sand. Messy, carefree, enchanting. Isla may have been little, but a wise intuition told her not to break the spell. Their laughter was sweet music to Isla. How happy her mum and dad were. She hoped they didn't spill wine on her bouncy castle, but even more she hoped that they didn't notice her. She wondered what was so funny to them, but she was glad she didn't know. The next day at her birthday celebrations, Isla carried that feeling around all day like a party balloon just for her. She couldn't explain it, but it was a warmth that spread through her chest and lit up her whole universe. They brought out her birthday cake together, singing joyfully and sharing secret glances. With a mouthful of marzipan, she knew. She knew they were her lighthouse in this loud and busy world, there to guide her and keep her safe, always. Clinking glasses jolted Isla from her reverie back into the moment. As she regained focus, she realised the whole room was looking at her expectantly. Both were smiling at her, both willing her to do well from polar ends of the universe. If only they could look at each other like that again. It's time for your speech, Isla. She swilled the metallic bubbles of her champagne around her mouth, playing for time as she straightened her thoughts. Smoothing down her bridesmaid's dress, she rose out of her chair to begin. Isla had beautiful stories to share about her sister, but she knew that she would keep that pocket of sunshine all for herself. I didn't expect that. <laughs> it's funny how the story at the end becomes more about Isla to me. And I guess that's why we've picked nostalgia as a theme for it. Because although we hear about the parents and they're laughing and drink, drinking wine or whatever, for me, the shift is about Isla's response to that and less about the relationship between her parents. Yeah. And that, I wonder about the lens we're seeing it through. Is she really seeing what she's seeing or is she seeing what she wants to see or hopes to see? Yeah. And in, and we don't know the background to the story, right? So perhaps, you know, the parents are parents that fight a lot, you know, and then she remembers this because it's a golden moment of sunshine rather than, you know, one example of hundreds where they were always together laughing and exchanging looks. Because I think if you grew up in a house where parents did exchange looks quite a lot you know one moment of that wouldn't necessarily be so memorable so part of me thinks 
it's Isla here because she's latched on to this story or this memory because it was what convinced her as a child that things were going to be all right, which I know is a really dark reading of this story. But, you know, and I also think, you know, even when my parents fought when I was a child, whenever they stopped fighting or the very first kind of moment of laughter that they had together, I was relieved that it was ending. So this has that feel about it somehow. And I think probably for me as well, I wonder if she remembers it so clearly because of the framework it's set against, because of the unusual feature of having the bouncy castle and that's what makes it stand out amongst what I wonder was you know a fairly common happening as all parents do and all people living together do you know have a disagreement and then as you say an easing afterward because I mean that what what she tells about that instance isn't that unusual you know if you've got a glass of wine if you had one glass of wine in you and then you were trying to jump on a bouncy castle with a glass of wine with your other hand on top of course you would laugh because you couldn't manage it so as adults reading that story I think well of course that's funny so I can tell why they're laughing and getting on I mean the fact that they're doing it is funny and means that they're getting on very well and having a laugh but as a child seeing your parents do something giddy and silly is great I think but the fact that she carried that that feeling around with her that almost that becomes the gift that she realizes her parents are in this state together makes me think that they often aren't and then it explains her feeling at the wedding yeah her frustration at how far things have come it it sounds like the sister although she's probably engaged in in being married you know and, and her focus will rightly be on the person she's married but you know she's not paying attention to it children respond differently to parents arguing or whatever but it sounds like isla's taking it really to heart and maybe it's because that lighthouse feeling that she had was wrong or didn't didn't survive or whatever because just because they're not together doesn't mean they're not supportive of her so but she's obviously furious with them and I don't recognise the depth of her reverie. I can be in a scenario like that where the speech is going on or, or something's happening and my thoughts can drift a little bit. But what I don't recognise is being so deep when I'm in that sort of formal setting that I need to be jolted back. You know, I think if I knew I had a speech coming, I'd be having half an ear out for the person before me finishing up. Yeah, and it makes you wonder why, you know, she's gone so far, maybe maybe to get away from the room or get away from the feeling of... Impending speechifying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe she's... And also maybe, you know, the memory is such a strong one that she's gone back to it as a way of compensating for the fact that when she looks up, her parents are looking in opposite directions. So it feels like almost like a knee jerk to what's happening in the room. Let me go to a happier place. I don't think I've I've ever been so out of it in a big room like that. Certainly not when I think people are about to be expecting something from me, which also maybe says something about her and her experience of, you know, what's happened in that family. It's so strong that it's taken her out of a enormous busy room i wonder too whether what she's done is nostalgia for me nostalgia is looking back at a time with a memory certainly through rose tinted glasses you know there was that day when there's a sense of longing in the word nostalgia either longing to revisit or repeat or even relive the memory nostalgia for me doesn't sit around sort of a bad or an unpleasant experience in the past it definitely smooths over the the bad bits you know so i might be nostalgic for my summer of 89 when i graduated from high school we spent lots of time at the beach and but the reality of that summer if i think hard about it will have been going to work putting in nine to five stinking hot days and but of course for me when I think back to that summer I think oh it was such a great summer for me that's nostalgia it's ignoring the reality of the situation to some extent in order to remember something in a particular light 
Oh, I really enjoyed that story. It took me right back to bouncing on uh, the, not the pink bouncy castle, but the yellow and red striped bouncy castle that came to the beach each summer. Yeah, I can't imagine a bouncy castle with sand on it, but, um, you know, someone who loves sand, I just can't imagine it. Well, we have a read of Jen's beautiful poem, Nine No Place. It's the title poem from her collection, Nine No Place, which I think won her the T.S. Eliot Award at 28. Yeah, I think she was the youngest at the time. I'm not sure if it's still true, but I think she was the youngest ever. Which is remarkable. It's a beautiful little book if you don't know it. So it begins with a quote from The Tempest. Let me read it. I prithee, let me bring thee where crabs grow, and I, with my long nails, will dig thee pig nuts. I will meet you at Pity Me Wood. I will meet you at Up to No Good. I will meet you at Stank, Shank, and Sty. I will meet you at Blowfly. I will meet you at Low Spying How. I will meet you at Salt Pie. I will meet you at Copper Top. I will meet you at Scandale Bottom. I will meet you at Crack Pot Moor. I will meet you at Mucker. I will meet you at Dirty Peace. I will meet you at Booze Alberta. I will meet you at Bloody Vale. I will meet you at Hunger Hill. It's almost like an incantation, isn't it? This some sort of spell or liturgy or something like that. So, and and they're in two line stanzas. Yeah, it feels like the underlying sort of statement of it is, "I'll meet you anywhere." Yeah, I don't care where we meet, as long as you're there, it's good for me. And they're all over the place. These places, and it, it basically doesn't matter. All of the places are all sort of initial caps so we know that they are places at the end of each line even though they could be you know foods or other things too and some of them could be names you'd given to a place like hunger hill sounds like something you might call a place when you're you know when you're climbing up at hungry and then i could imagine my children forever naming it hungry hill or hunger hill and say the same with up to no good you know, yeah, that, exactly. That, that sounds like a sort of jumping in the river when you're not supposed to and an adult saying, are you up to no good? And forever that place being up to no good. And the same with low spying how, you know, it's the kind of name a child would give to a place that you crawl along, you know, and spy on places on other people as they walk past. I mean, the other alternative is you could imagine these all being place names that you'd come up with as a child. You know, if you had to give a name to all the places that you hid out as a child or you played as a child, you might be able to do something like this. And certainly field names for farmers, they have crazy names. Yeah, and the title Nino Place is the name of a field in Yorkshire. I remember, I, I think I saw the speech or maybe read an article when this collection won the prize. And I wonder if that was the sort of then the the catalyst for, right, how many other field names can I make up? Because you're right, farmers do have really unusual and slightly odd names for the fields often. Yeah, well, the farm I spend time in um, southwest Scotland has some great ones, the windmill, the iron railings, the lower deer and the upper deer. It has some really interesting 
ones. And if you think hard about it, you can kind of work out how they got named that. But don't think they're actually named those anywhere. They're just the, the names that have been passed down from generation to generation or farmer to farmer. And I, I like you spent, or mine was as a child, but spent time on my dad's cousin's farm. And, and the field names were really to know where to move the cattle to, but also to know where to take the harvest tea. If it was your turn to go out, you had to know where the, where the farmers were and the farmhands were working. So you'd be sent off to Bottom Randall or Over the Leap or whatever it was to make sure you delivered the food on time to the right place because boy you'd be in trouble if you were late for lunch yeah because they don't usually stop for long either especially if the rain's coming when you read i will meet you at scandale bottom when i first read it i read that as i will meet you at scandal bottom <laughs> <laughs> which puts a whole different cast on, on the possibilities of that it does feel like a map for me and this is me wanting it to be nostalgic of childhood place names. You know, if I had to make a, a list of places that I might meet a child that I knew when I was maybe 10 or 11, you know, too young to know, to be sort of self-conscious about it and too old to have my mother worry about where I was too for too long. We probably did have some funny place names like this, Pirate's Rock and other places. If you had the benefit of staying in one place long enough, which I didn't, you know, you could, and you could almost have city places like that in Edinburgh. I can imagine if I asked my children, they would be able to now not just pub names, but be able to, you know, have the whale bones and the meadows, for example. If you weren't from Edinburgh, you might think, you know, that was a meadow. Um, and so you can imagine creating one of these for your own childhood or your own life, you know, earlier life, whether it's childhood or not. It occurred to me that it could be a kind of goodbye, this poem too. You know, if it was someone that you'd known your whole life, it could be almost a funeral poem of the places that you'll see them still, even when you can't. I mean, there's something rhythmic and liturgical about it, when it's, which I know I didn't notice so much until you were reading it aloud. Yeah, exactly. It feels like, as you say, you said an incantation of some kind. What I was saying to begin with, which is, you know, I'll meet you anywhere, is what it really is saying to me. It feels like that... Um, that incantation can continue, is continuing without us hearing it or without it being written down. So it does some, in some ways feel like it could be all the places you might see someone again, where it continues even though the person isn't there anymore. You know, it feels like it could be to a parent or, you know, someone that you've loved that you've lost. And very much sense of nostalgia. Yeah, which is remarkable because I think of a nostalgia and maybe it's the poet in me as being kind of golden light and, you know, dripping honey and, you know, all those sorts of like kind of almost cliched sweetnesses about them. And yet there's nothing sweet about this poem, I don't think. Sorry, Jen. I mean, the, the poem itself in its making, in its existence, there's a sweetness about it, um, taking the time to write it. But there isn't anything nostalgic in terms of its sweetness here. But yes, it does really feel like nostalgic to me in some way. Yeah, and I mean, even the place names themselves, they're not particularly nice. You know, stank, blowfly, crackpot moor, you know, dirty piece. It's not that they're, they're beautiful names that are wrapping these places or these experiences up in cotton wool. And the rest of the language in the poem is just, I will meet you at. So it's, it's remarkable how imbued with nostalgia Jen manages to make it. Yeah, and completely different from the epigraph, the... The Tempest Afrograph, which feels more nostalgic in its kind of traditional way, long nails and pig nuts and where the crabs grow, that feels of nostalgia for me. Let me, let's look back to that beautiful place where the crabs grow. And yet Jen's done something completely hard to me and different. 
and and yet it evokes the same thing. At risk of getting called out on this, I also know that it's 14 lines. So I was thinking, you know, if this was a poem, if I had written this poem and I had written it for someone, I would be burying something, you know, at the Volta, at the turn there. But but because of us not knowing these place names, it's hard to identify what it might be. But if it was a poem for someone alive or someone not alive, but I wanted to say something, I might flip the kind of place names that I was using in the last four lines. But it's really hard to tell whether it is a sonnet or whether that's done. I wondered if there was something in Boo's Alberta, because that's the only one that we can actually identify where it is. Yeah. And it's the only place, yeah, that has a comma, basically. Yeah, and it's specified, it's, yeah. Yeah, so maybe... Um, we'll need to ask Jen next time we see her. <laughs> or not, you know, we can just decide. Yeah, we can just decide. She might not remember, though no, she will. But yeah, I think the possibilities for a poet with a poem that looks so simple on its face are endless here. And that's the joy that you can hide things of your own in poems. Um, and other people can decide what they mean. But yeah, for me, it reads a bit like a sonnet, even though formally it's not, you know, the, it's it's in couplets rather than in six and eight or eight and six or, you know, in the usual format. And then, of course, Nino place itself being, yeah, telling us that there might not be this place. So, yeah, yeah a little unnostalgic, nostalgic poem. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, thanks, Jen, for letting us have that to read today. I think that's all from us today. We just want to say thanks for having us in your ears. Come and find us at the Book Festival if you're in Edinburgh or join us for an event or otherwise if you're you're not. And otherwise, we'll be back with you again early in September.